0: Hello and welcome to the Project Art Centre in Dublin and this arena special celebrating 40 years of Rough Magic Theatre Company. <laughs> yes, indeed. It is 40 years since a troop of Trinity graduates unwilling to give up their thespian pursuits in players decided that they would give it a go one summer putting on plays for tourists by day offering the theatre going public the best in contemporary drama by night from there grew Rough Magic the company that has indeed brought to Irish audiences such exciting work as Michael Friens, Copenhagen, Schiller's Don Carlos, Carol Churchill's Top Girls they have produced high quality groundbreaking Irish work as well works like Declan Hughes's award winning Digging for Fire, Arthur Reardon's comical musical Improbable Frequency and the stage version of Mike McCormick's novel Solar Bones adapted by Michael West and performed to great acclaim by Stanley Townsend. Over the next hour we will have performances from Rough Magic's back catalogue, Digging for Fire, The Emergency Session, Hecuba, The Taming of the Shrew, Pentecost and Top Girls. Uh, behind me on stage are dressed mannequins wearing costumes from many of those productions. And as our backdrop this evening in the Project Art Centre, we have a selection of posters from the last 40 years of Rough Magic Productions. A very full playlist, Let Us Raise the curtain On stage with me, founding members Lynn Parker, also Artistic Director of the company, Declan Hughes, and Siobhan Burke, along with Booker Prize winning author and... Rough Magic actress <laughs> Anne Enright. Welcome to all of them. And Lynn, I, I think there's no doubt, Lynn Parker, that players was really essential to the start as a starting point or to the beginnings of Rough Magic.
1: Well the company was a collision of UCD and players Um, and certainly Declan and I had started working in players with Anne and many others but it was a summer season in 1984 that kicked it all off and Anne Byrne and Siobhan Burke joined us from UCD and at the end of that summer we decided that we were going to all make a go of it.
0: And what what were you looking at at that point in time if you can cast your mind back to what was basically on offer in terms of Irish theatre, which to a large extent was mainstream Irish Theatre. There weren't a lot of small companies around at the time.
1: Yeah, well, I mean the 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 landscape was full of depression and people emigrating and so forth. Mm. And in fact, um, there weren't that many opportunities in the the main houses. So an awful lot of us and other companies as well at that time just threw their lot in with uh, the independent theatre scene, which became incredibly electric and vibrant and very active. Um, And in in this very location and project, uh, a lot of that work was done.
0: A very different project from the one we're sitting in today a little draughtier
1: a little bit leakier yes
0: a <laughs> lot wetter that is that is for absolute sure what type of plays would Declan when yourself and Lynn started those conversations what type of theatre did you want to bring to Irish audiences
2: well we had a an eye on particularly a, a, a sort of English left-wing theatre that um companies like like Jo- joint stock under max staffer clark and uh, and the royal court at the time uh were doing and that had been done in bigger houses so that we used to call them the howards and the davids howard brenton howard barker david hare david edgar um and it, and it was in in keeping with a sort of cultural sense i think we had that you know we uh, as as the extract from digging for fire will probably rehearse we grew up with the radio wall and we grew up with the sense of english and american culture mm. being more central to our lives than the irish tradition and so that was one big impulse but also lynn and i were big fans respectively of of uh, restoration comedy and jacobean tragedy and those playwrights wrote these big scale plays based around those kind of big forms when we ended up doing them we would um we 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 would do a, a kind of um, you know mixed play. We would, we would cast it with we, we, you know set, actors playing multiple parts, mm. and and that was also a joint stock model. The original early productions of the. Uh, Carol Churchill plays were done along those lines.
0: And Anne, Anne Enright, when you came in to, uh, and I think it was into players first, it was as an actress. Was that the, was that the kind of hope at that stage?
3: So uh, you don't go in as an actor, right? You go in as an actor and a carpenter and a painter and a lights <laughs> technician. And, uh, you know, somebody who can repatch plugs at speed and in the lighting box and an all nighter and, you know, good, good, Good sport, and um, so yeah. But uh, there were a lot of students wanted to act, and I suppose I was one of them. How did you get? How did you get into players? So uh, you, you you joined. Uh, you joined in freshers' week, which was the first week of being a first year in Trinity mm-hmm. College Dublin, and all the tables were out in um, front square, and I I knew already that I wanted to be theatrical in some way. I was wearing a poncho I had made myself. <laughs> Um, Of which I was very proud. It was a blanket from Kilkenny Design with a hole cut out of it. And I went up to the players' table and with a swirl of my uh, pure wool poncho, I signed my name uh, to the list Mm. and for the the Freshers Co-op, which is... Um, a cooperative production that uh, Stanley Townsend and Martin Murphy were directing. Yeah,
0: Martin Murphy had yes. a big say in your becoming part of Players and the company. Uh,
3: he did. I, I think I would have got my way in one way or another. But <laughs> <laughs> but his response was uh, enthusiastic. Yes. He, uh, yes. Come on, tell me what <laughs> he said. He didn't say anything. He wrote something down. Uh, the page, he wrote though. something down and told me later, years later, what he had written down. I was doing. Uh, I was doing an audition for a nervous housewife who had something wrong with her floorboards and in uh, called Mrs Brandywine. Um, and whatever I did, clearly it was the ideal nervous housewife um, because apparently he wrote on the sheet, he said, bingo! There you exclamation go. mark, exclamation And mark.
0: of course, you are now... Man and wife, that is, is the other side of That's that. That's one way I? of describing it. <laughs>
3: that,
0: that is the other part, or one other part of that story, however it is, rough magic that we're going to investigate Indeed. tonight rather than anything else. Um, Siobhan, how did a UCD of UCD heads venture into Trinity the way you did?
4: Um, well, Anne and I met in UCD in Dramsock and mm. um, Anne Barn, yeah. Anne Barn, yeah, and we did a number of shows together and I think in 84 I did a production of Waiting for Godot where I realised I'm not an actor, I'm getting out of this actor business. And when the summer came, Kathy Leaney, who had directed um, that show, Waiting for Godot invited me to join a summer company she was setting up. And there in Trinity doing the summer company, I met the Rough Magics or I met Declan, who came after me on a bicycle going, would you like to join, okay. <laughs> would you like to join um, our summer company? where Rough Magic. And that was my introduction to the company. And Anne was already in. And Anne, I think, had thought maybe I would be interested in acting, but mm. that was made clear. Didn't I know I I'm, I'm, skipping,
0: I'm skipping along a little bit in, in some ways here. To what extent, Lynn, do you think that Rough Magic became as much a writer's company as it was an actor's company, because there are a phenomenal number, of two of them are sitting on the stage with us here, but I'm thinking of people like Gina Moxley as well, who was very much involved in the company and now writes a, a large amount as well. To what extent was it a writer's company and did you want to kind of inculcate that side of things in what you were doing?
1: Well, we were always interested in good writing. I mean, that was the really common thread. I mean, the programme is very eclectic, but mm. um, we... First, we were doing international contemporary work like um, Top Girls or American Buffalo or whatever, and then we uh, started to hone our skills in classics, uh, the Silver Tassie or the Country Wife, and eventually we were learning enough. We thought to try this out ourselves. So really, we we um, started to commission work, and that was that made a huge difference. And. A lot of the writers who we approached initially were actually actors um, because we felt it was quite important that people knew the theatre, they Mm. were at the coalface of performance and that was a very important part of uh, why we would uh, identify certain people like Gina or Arthur or Donald Kelly um, who were all performers. (coughs) Tom
0: Boyd. Declan, um obviously digging for fire was one of the huge successes and a really important moment a little bit into the company's history granted it was also a hugely important moment for you this was a play that was i suppose telling a story on an irish stage that we weren't used to
2: seeing yeah i mean on the face of it it's not exactly revolutionary it's like middle-class people in their late 20s you know Mm. so it wasn't like sort of burning down the, the 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 barricades but 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 it, it didn't, it hadn't seemed to be, I mean, one of my issues was, I never seem to see people like me on an Irish stage. Mm. Um, and and the play is about people in their late 20s, with that sense that they're all friends, except the friendships aren't lingering in the way that they thought they were. There's a marriage there that isn't all it should be. Um, but it's also a play, and writers often have this, uh, it's a play with an agenda. Um, it, it says, Things aren't not like like that, like the rest of the Irish theater. they're not like that they're like this, mm. this is the way things are now you know and 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 it had a kind of cultural argument um and that I think I imbibed from those political playwrights mm. of the of the seventies to 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 a certain extent. How excited um, were you when you read that script Lyn
1: well, we knew this was really important and siobhan had already sort of started to uh, make some headway with uh, connections across in london you know and, and the show when it was produced in dublin had a huge effect but also it took us off the island for the first time really mm. uh, i mean we'd, we'd already sort of made it a few little forages but digging for fire really made an imprint in london and suddenly our reputation was being made there and that, of that course had
0: always been there to, to in- tour internationally i think siobhan hadn't absolutely yeah.
4: Yeah.
1: we were determined i think from very early on to tour
4: nationally first and get known around ireland and then I think with yeah. a lot of shows behind us we took off to England, and it was a fabulous relationship we had with a number of key uh, London mm. new writing houses and an opportunity to bring Declan's work and others, Gina's, uh, um, lots yeah. of amazing plays to London and have big well, hits for the company. That,
2: that play was like a Petri dish. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, Arthur, Palm, Tom, yeah, Gina yeah. all wrote plays, mm. and I think tomorrow night, Peter Hanley, who's another member of the original cast, is going to read from well, Play in Progress. Yeah. Uh, so four
0: out of seven. Well, uh, we're going to hear, uh, uh, begin the performances at this point in tonight's show with an excerpt from Digging for Fire. Would you talk us into this, Stecklin, and give us, a, give us a context for where we are and um, uh, what we need to know?
2: Well, the, the main speaker here is, uh, I, I very much regret to say a writer, in no way to be confused <laughs> with the author, but uh, uh, on a little bit of a role. Um, and the line that precedes this, he says something like, I grew up with the radio on with English and, uh, England and America burning into my brain. Um, and, and he is basically saying, it's not the way you think it is. It's the way I am saying it is. Um, it feels it's 1991. You know, five or six years later, the internet made all of this quite evident.
0: All right. Well, let us hear it then. An extract from Declan Hughes's Digging for Fire.
2: You just don't
4: understand.
1: Talk radio here. Even if people feel isolated, lost in the suburbs or something, they can tune in and feel a part of what's going on. It's like they're living in a village and they want to keep up with the gossip.
5: And what about the people who don't want to live in a village? The people who left before their village suffocated them? Is village life supposed to be the most authentic? The most Irish? It's also about having a sense of place. And what happens when you don't have a sense of place? When I arrived in New York for the first time, And as the cab swung past that graveyard and I got my first glimpse of the Manhattan skyline, I felt like I was coming home. The landscape was alive in my dreams. The streets were memories from a thousand movies. The city was mine. Well, you have a sense of place, Danny. It just happens to be somebody else's place. No, it doesn't. It's as much Ireland as Dublin is. Millions of Irish went out and invented it as much, uh, probably more, than any invented this poxy post-colonial backwater. So
1: what's the problem? You don't like it here? Fine. You don't live here? You feel at home there? Great. You live there. What's the
5: big deal? The big deal. The big The deal is that there is as much here as here is. And I don't believe the here you're describing exists here. To me, here is more like there. Danny, are you on drugs?
0: And that was Evan Gaffney, Colin Campbell, and Emmanuel Okoye with an extract from Declan Hughes's *Digging for Fire*. Arena, coming to you live from the Project Arts Centre in Dublin this evening, celebrating forty years of Rough Magic Theatre Company. And I'm guessing that even hearing those words must bring back so so many memories. It was it was such an, a, a hugely important play for the company, really, wasn't it?
1: It was one of those ones that people talk about, you know, other directors, mm. like John Crowley would say, that was the play where I saw my own generation on stage, you know.
0: Yeah. Where was writing at for you at this point, at that point in, in the rough magic, evol- Evolve Anne? Um...
3: I think I was working in RTE at the time Hmm. and not writing uh, writing at the weekends Um, and I remember sitting in the audience just over there actually in Project Arts Centre looking at this play and thinking, has Declan Hughes literally stolen my life now (laughs) and what is going on? I was quite outraged for the first uh, 20 minutes. I was like, how? there was a radio producer on stage in rte do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. um and then at, at uh, about 15 20 minutes in i passed through some sort of shimmering curtain of self-consciousness and i realized no it's not actually about you it's about something more abstract more interesting more moving more you know something that can be resolved and 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 actually at that moment and afterwards, I realized that to write in a contemporary way, to write close to your own life was energizing, was unsettling. and what and and was the way forward for me personally, that I didn't have to reach to old old. To older, well, you can use older stories, but I didn't have to reach to some idea of story that had been handed down to me in school and elsewhere in You know, in, of Irish story, I could write about the things I I could see. That was very liberating.
0: And, and I guess in some ways, what you're saying is that that experience of the of the rough magic writing machines that were that were there at that time. Did liberate you into the writer that you became, or yeah. certainly gave you the the seed for that writer? There's
3: a very little difference between writing and acting. I mean, very it's it's a very hazy line. I mean, you're improvising. Uh, so so whatever whatever theatrical experience you have, the difference when you're writing on your own is that the cast is all in your head as opposed to out in the room. But some of those same skills, that creative mix, mm. goes into goes into your work. So all your acting went into
0: all your acting went into your writing. Do you did do you call that? Do you uh, read the the characters out loud for yourself? I,
3: I sometimes pull faces and <laughs> sometimes I might make little, you know, grunty little whatever and then I, I, I internalise it and it's not embarrassing at all.
0: Yeah, and it goes on the page uh, and you don't have to do yeah, it. Yeah, I don't have Although to. Although we don't. are going to ha- have a sample of uh, an Enright actress in just a minute but no. to, before we have that we do need to talk a little bit about Carol Churchill and Top Girls cause, and this was a little bit earlier than Digging for Fire I think actually, wasn't yeah. it? it? It was It was a very important kind of st- Statement in terms of the type of international th- plays you did want to do? Yeah, well, um, it, we
1: did it in 1984 in the first year mm. and it was Declan who actually egged me on to do it. I thought, we'll never get the rights to do that. He said, yeah, no, we'll go for it. And, um, yeah, it was. it's a remarkable play because it really sort of... Uh, Made a statement about what was happening in Britain and Thatcher's Britain, but it's much bigger than that, and it really talks about how the uh, people have to sort of. Uh, remember their where they came from when they're moving into the new sort of entrepreneurial world. And um, it was it it was it made quite an impact. Uh, It was one of the first plays we actually did in project because we'd moved from players. uh, So we did a double bill with American Buffalo. So that was kind of our imprint at the time
0: and th- those are very ambitious players to be putting on Declan
2: well that was a quality we were not short on <laughs>
6: you,
2: you know everything and fear nothing when you're in your early 20s <laughs> uh so so we just we just went for it yeah yeah
0: and um, in terms of this stage, you, you were acting in in Top Girls. Uh, yes, I was the the, the character of Dull Gret, How would you do, even the name says a lot. Now there's a Bruegel painting involved here, however. But explain who she is and where she fits into the action.
3: Uh, dull Gret is Mad Meg, or Dull is apparently means Mad uh, rather than Dull in Dutch. <laughs> um, and she so the first act of Top Girls it's a real kind of lesson, or oh, it's an amazing masterclass in in how female speech happens and overlaps. I mean, it's really, I sometimes give it to students to show how people interrupt each other. It was an amazing piece. All famous women from history or, unfa- you know, l- less than famous, one of them was Dahlgrat. And so Dahlgrat invaded hell um, and was painted by Bruegel in a kind of imitation of Hieronymus Bosch, uh, those hellish kind of mm. uh, surreal uh, Dutch landscapes. And she doesn't say Delgrette. much...
0: Until she says a lot. (laughs) Yeah,
3: you know, Lynn Parker said, I want you to do this part. It's called Gret. You have to sit there and eat potatoes for 20 minutes straight. And then here's two cold bottles of Ribena. Could you keep drinking them? <laughs> Is that an acting challenge or, <laughs> or an eating challenge? Uh, yeah, whatever it was. No one, no one knows how actors suffer. Really, it was very physically challenging. I might as well have been on a trapeze. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, I just had to <clears> look kind of bewildered. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, listen. I, I'm going to let you go over to the performance mic, and as you're as you're doing that, getting ready to perform this uh, section from the Top Girls, you might. Uh, Give us the basic setup of the play itself, Lynn, and this dinner party that these famous women from history are at.
1: The dinner party is is the bit which is a historical context, I suppose. But the real story takes off around an employment agency um, and is centred around a, a woman who runs it, Marlene. And Anne also played, and this is where the doubling comes in, uh, the character of Angie, who is a difficult child and uh, is related to this woman who is a very successful entrepreneur. So there's lots of clashes in there.
0: And this speech, the specific speech that we're about to hear, where does it fit into the overall. Well this is
1: part of the dinner party and this is her sort of explosive uh, utterance uh, after being quiet and eating potatoes for a long time.
0: (laughs) And drinking bottles of Ribena pretending that it was wine. It is my absolute joy to introduce Anne Enright actress performing from her role as Dullgret in Carol Churchill's Top Girls.
3: This piece is also known as Don't Give Up The Day Job Anne. So uh, it's Dullgret. We come into hell through a big mouth hell's black and red it's like the village where i come from there's a river and a bridge and houses there's places on fire like when the soldiers come there's a big devil sat on a roof with a big hole in his arse and he's scooping stuff out of it with a big ladle and it's falling down on us and it's money so a lot of the women stop and get some but most of us is fighting the devils there's lots of little devils our size And we get them down all right and give them a beating. There's lots of funny creatures around your feet you don't like to look. Like rats and lizards and nasty things. A bum with a face. And fish with legs and faces on things that don't have faces on. But they don't hurt you. You just keep going. Well we'd had worse you see. We'd had the Spanish. We'd had all family killed. My big son die on a wheel, birds eat him. my baby, a soldier, run her through with a sword. I'd had enough. I was mad. I hate the bastards. I come out my front door that morning and shout till my neighbours come out. And I said, come on, we're going to where the evil come from and pay the bastards out. And they all come out just as they was in ba- from baking or washing in their aprons. And we push down the street. And the ground opens up and we go through a big mouth into a street just like ours, but in hell. I got a sword in my hand from somewhere and I fill a basket with gold cups they drink out of down there. You just keep running on and fighting. You didn't stop for nothing. Oh, we give them devils such a beating.
0: Lin Wright, performing the part of Dull Gret from Carl Churchill's Top Girls, one of the plays that Rough Magic Theatre Company uh, produced in the very first year of their existence, 1984, 40 years ago, which is what we're celebrating this evening on on Arena. Um, I I won't ask Lynn about this because I have to ask some others to talk about it. I'll start with you, Declan. The nature of the direction, I mean, these were very contemporary plays Mm with their challenges. And then there was also that other side, the Jacobean uh, tragedies uh, and, and the restoration comedies that were, were part of the, the, the overall repertoire. What is Lynn's quality as a director, do you think, that she brought to, to the company?
2: She's a great eye and she's patience. I would say they're the two things you need. Um, and she's a great uh, sense of a script. But also, I mean, Lynn has such a considerable and varied artistic practice developed over the years. Um, But she's brilliant and it's a gift at understanding what people are capable of and pushing them towards it. Um, Whether that be actors or designers or writers. Um, I mean, I'm not sure I would have written a play. Uh, I was quite, seemed quite content to sort of say I would write a play. And I was going to write a play. I was one of those guys, maybe <laughs> We're familiar with them in Dublin. Um, and, and Lynn kind of kept nudging me and going, remember, you said you were going to do that thing and, you know, you did that thing. And I'd done a couple of adaptations and I'd done this and done that. And, and it was so she's a great, um, as it were, entrepreneur of talent. You know, she and she sees what people have and she and she pushes them towards the best versions of themselves. And that's uh, that's extraordinary. And and Anne, I I wrote
0: something that you had written where you you talked about it's funny enough, we have all of these costumes and mannequins behind us tonight. And in a moment of great ham activity, I put on Lady Bracknell's hat for our social media um, feed. It's all up there for you to enjoy and laugh at. But as I was putting the hat back on, it was not at the right angle on the mannequin and Lynn was immediately over to, <laughs> to, to fix that hat back into place the way it should be. I bring that up because there's something about form and shape and line uh, I think that you have spoken about in in the way Lynn works.
3: Yeah, the first uh, play I did with her was in Players. It was called Every Man, and the set was based on on Bauhaus. Lynn told me at the age of 18, I'd never heard of Bauhaus, but it was a very simple pastel coloured uh, triangle, a circle, and a square, and so I. I just worked so well. I, I had no idea where such an idea might come from, or how, but but from from conception to execution, everything. You know, Lynn knew exactly what what she wanted to do all along, and. I think that thing of making shapes. So it's about about people m- making social social shapes on stage. So for a young company, it wasn't about torment, angst, or you know cruelty, or many of the. It wasn't about excess. It wasn't about having a big adolescent hoo ha. You know, mm. it was about controlling these amaz- the, the, the it, choreographed shapes very social things like wild and uh, yeah, you know I mean a lot of uh, Lynn's uh, uh, background goes back into in English literature would be from Austin I think and Barbara Pym and people like that so um, uh, so yeah it's a it's about these it's, it's not all out there it's about hmm. so there is an a, an extremely mature amount of restraint in what goes on on stage from an early time and and from that
0: point of view for you, for you, Lynn, where did that sensibility come from? Do you think I mean Anne is touching on it there in the types of literature that you were reading?
1: Well, I was very fortunate, and my uncle Stuart Parker was a writer, and I um, was taught very early the power of crafted literary writing, but I was also interested in art and I've always been interested in dance so that the three-dimensional nature of theatre always fascinated me and yeah I mean um, the control of a situation the control of the energy within a situation is the stuff we love to do in rehearsals. Um, The
0: other aspect that I think was often spoken about uh, in Rough Magic Theatre Company productions through the years was Yes, there was that writing and those classics that were there and the contemporary work, but there was always a great sense of style in the look of the piece, in the set of the piece, in the design of the piece. Um, Why was that so important to you? Obviously it's part of theatre, but it really seemed to be very important to you and to the company.
1: It was very important to always to create the world of the play. And, you know, we worked with incredible designers all the way along, Um, you know, Barbara Bradshaw and Brian Power, Kathy Strachan's here Mm -hmm. tonight. And you can see a lot of these amazing costumes were um, uh, designed by wonderful designers but that's very much part of the ensemble com- conversation. So the great thing is that you feed all of this talent and this visual um, ability into the story you want to tell. It's, it's that that was back
0: in some ways, Declan. I think that kind of uh, design aspect of things too, wasn't it, was Talbot's Box the, the very first play that you did, the Thomas Kilroy play? Yeah. That and that, well, that had a big d- design factor to it.
2: Oh yeah, amazing, A uh, uh, kind of uh, wooden, Gates that open to mirror the, the sort of uh, uh, works that Mac Talbot worked, worked in. Um, but but, but Lynn, Lynn designed everything until we could afford other designers. <laughs> and she designed everything at Players. Every, I was thinking back on all the things and think, oh yeah, Lynn designed that. Oh yeah, I had a quarrel with Lynn over that. But I want to say something also about you never had to worry when Lynn was directing uh, a, something you'd written about a, any line where you'd you'd think, can you get them to... And she'd go, I know, he's saying it wrong, I've told him, I will (sighs) get there. So she always understood the rhythm, the cadence, she had just an unerring sense of that.
0: Yeah, Um, directors know it's only week one, writers think it's the night before opening. (laughs)
7: Because
0: it is. If I might (laughs) throw in an actor thought on that particular one. Um, Siobhan, at what point did it become that this company was established enough that financially it didn't have to be Lynn during the designs and the things the way Declan has described it. The point at which there was decent funding in behind it or funding enough to get on with things the way you might want to.
4: I would say at the very beginning, we got a a first Arts Council grant within five months of the company going. It was 2,750 pounds and the seven of us Helene, Anne and suddenly Arthur, Lynn, myself and Declan stood outside there and danced. We did a jig. <laughs> yeah, it was such a vote of confidence. And the memory of that is still in my head. And I feel that what happened over the next five years was the grant doubled every year, more or less, and then it kind of got to a point where we, we were able, I suppose, to kind of um, meet, meet the bills and um, mm. be equitable and fair yeah, with everybody and, and in our dealings.
0: Realise the ambition that, was, that the was there ambition, from the very yeah. start. Uh, in this f- uh, first part of the programme, the we're going to finish up with uh, an extract from the emergency session. And you, in some ways, are responsible for this, And Enright and Martha so, Reardon. Yes, I'll um, take the credit. Yeah, it, it has to do with <laughs> Nighthawks because you were, you were at that point. The television programme, you were a producer yeah, on Nighthawks yeah. and Arthur was involved, do you remember? Arthur produced
3: amazing scripts and he was De Valera, I mean we had done a thing called the 24 Hour Shakespeare on the steps of the dining hall in Trinity and uh, Arthur did this amazing character called the Merchant of Ennis <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we saw his Dev impersonation for the first time and from that seed some years later came his amazing Dev rap videos for Nighthawks which were just a privilege to Uh, produce
0: yeah and and from that then um is the emergency session a stage show that started life as a piece of performance as you said and arthur raiden's dev rap commissioned by late night uh, rte tv show night hawks and arthur was then developed the tv piece into a stage show which was called the emergency session and here is arthur performing a medley from
8: that show
9: This meeting is now in session. All in favour, say, yo! It's an emergency session, a Patriots game show. This meeting is now in session. Attention, remain in your seats. I repeat, we have an emergency session with the hip-hop of Barney and Beat. It's an emergency session. It's an emergency session. Now listen carefully. What's on the agenda? Me, and all Irish, half Spanish, Brooklyn MC, MC, DEV, the Longfellow occasionally, or in Hispanic Argot. Yo soy el hombre largo. <laughs> We're neutral, more or less. We're neutral, more or less. We're absolutely, positively neutral, more or less. More or less than more, or less more than less, unless there's any doubt, I can more or less assure you that we're in unless we're out. And like as not, and quite as likely, less than likely not, we are more than likely neutral. Is that crystal clear or what? Saturday night, just got paid. Say, has anybody seen my motorcade? Gonna rock and roll, gonna lose control, just me and old John Charles McQuaid and the Chief. I'm the chief. I've got a constitution that you won't believe. So be a devotee, Deus year, I'm a gung ho, go-go I'm a rebel. I'm a rebel with a mean and moody sparkle. I am a dark horse. I'm a cross between James Dean and Arkell. My pronouns are me, me, me. I'm a rebel with a bloss. I'm an ancient Irish monument. I'm Celtic and I'm cross. It's an emergency session. Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generations,
6: chill out!
8: Arthur Reardon with
0: that uh, selection from the emergency session. We'll have more from Rough Magic 40 year special after this break. And welcome back to the Project Arts Centre in this arena special, celebrating 40 years of Rough Magic Theatre Company. <laughs> with me on stage now, two stalwarts of Irish theatre scene and indeed of Rough Magic, Own Row and Eleanor Method. Eleanor, uh, uh, to what extent, I wondered, you were a very busy actor and company director in Belfast with Charabang, um, but you m- decided to move down to Dublin. How important was Rough Magic in that move for you?
10: Uh, incredibly important in that uh, we wound up the company in 1995 and Lynn had already directed for us several times, already knew Lynn, and she immediately, as soon as the company folded, said to myself and my co-artistic director, Carol Moore, right, I'm doing Pentecost, you're playing Mary and you're playing Lily. So it was my first gig with Rough Magic, um, but it was also a possibility if there's a life outside, <laughs> what you've just been doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's the favourite role I've ever played.
0: Yeah, and for you on um, based here in Dublin at the time, I mean, I'm thinking of roles like um, Nicholas uh, Miles Bohr rather the intellectual scientist in in Michael Frayn's Copenhagen, mm. Petruccio, middle-aged Jack the Lad in the version of The Taming of the Shoe that we got in 2006. What was Rough Magic doing? for a for an indi- for an a freelance actor at that point in time in the 80s and 90s?
8: Well, it, for me, it was a case of um, I would really like to work with these people because of the plays they were choosing. Going right back to the, the very beginning, I was in another company when, when Rough Magic set themselves up, but uh, we had a different agenda completely. But it was lovely to see the plays we had heard about, uh, but never got around to you know the, mm. the big houses that weren't doing them. So for that reason, I thought, you know, I really would like to, Play with these people, and I was asked to do uh, my first gig was uh, Lady Windermere's Fan, I think, and that was a lot of fun. And I mean, I think Lynn is a is an alchemist, if you like. She gets the right mix. She puts the uh, right elements together of people, actors who spark off each other and create something wonderful. Mm. And we had that with uh, Taming of the Shrew as well, yeah. which uh, was, we set in uh, rural Ireland in the 60s, uh, 70s type mm. of thing, where we still had arranged marriages even yeah. then. And uh, it kind of came together and the language, because we Fitted did it, it with a r- rural language, yeah. uh, rural accents, it gave great power and colour to the language as well.
0: You didn't have to worry about accents for you at any rate, Eleanor, <laughs> when it came to, to Pentecost. Maybe maybe tell us a little <clears> bit. It's 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 by Lynn's uncle, it's by Stuart Parker, a very important player in Fields mm-hmm. um early days as well. Yeah. But this production uh, that you were involved in uh, Pentecost, maybe give, give us the setup and what the section of the play that you're going to perform for us.
10: Yeah, well, it is the late and truly lamented Stuart Parker's last play, actually. Um, we did it in 1995, and I believe there was a young, callow youth called Sean Rocks, who was playing opposite me at the were time. Is he now? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, Pentecost is set in a traditional back-to-back parlour house in East Belfast and the character that you're about to hear from bought the house just before the UWC strike in 1974, which brought down the Sunningdale Agreement, yet another uh, thing going on up there. I think Seamus Mallon famously said that the Good Friday Agreement was Sunningdale for slow learners. So this strike went on for 15 days and um, there was no light, there was no heat, they couldn't get bread in the shops, there were barricades on the streets and four misfits find themselves joining Marion in this house. It's a house uh, that has been vacated recently by a dead woman called Lily Matthews and Lily is a very implacable ghost, not only are her Complete goods and chattels still in the house, which Marian rummages through, but Lily appears to her three times throughout the play. Um, Her husband, just very quickly, it's a very important bit. Her husband, Alfie, went off during the Depression to find work in England and they took in a lodger called Alan Ferris, a British airman and a relationship ensued and a baby came out of that lily gave birth secretly and then took her child because she had to hide him and gave him up on the steps of a baptist church so the last act of the play takes place on pentecost sunday when the strike has died down and the four misfits have somehow come to terms and just as in the original pentecost tongues of fire descend and the spirit takes them and they all start telling stories and marion tells them what she has discovered about Lily. I'll give you a story. Lily sat in that parlour right through the blitz. Alfie was a fire warden out most nights. She promised him she'd stay down in the cellar during the air raids instead of which she sat up in that front parlour in the blackout the pitch dark listening to the war in the air the bombers and the fighters the akak and the shells falling falling and exploding she stretched out on that self same sofa where Alan Ferris had stretched her out seven years earlier, and pleasured her till her ears sang with a whole wild, uncontainable bubble. <laughs> she lay down in the dark, on her own now, and pictured him up there, burning a hole through the sky a dark angel. And her ears roared now with the rage of a wholesale slaughter, pounding the ground under her and the air all around her. Armageddon, random and blind, pulverising her whole body until she once more came and came again. And she composed herself to die there, waiting for the chosen bomb to fall on her and cleanse her terrible sinfulness and shame. The street next to this one was flattened one night. The parlor windows came in on her, but Lily wasn't even scratched. The skies cleared, the war ended, and there she still was unscathed. She interpreted this as her punishment. She had been condemned to life. A life sentence.
0: Alan uh, Messman performing from uh, Pentecost by Stuart Parker. And we'll go almost straight into the, p- the p- section from Produccio. But I think it's important, that from The Taming of the Shrew, Owen, I think it's important here to say that you were playing opposite the shrew that was Pauline McGlynn playing right, Catriona yeah. Yeah. in this particular production. A
8: tr- a very tricky taming, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, we were playing probably slightly older than is normally done in this yeah. play. And, uh, but it made a lot of sense to us and... Uh, as I say, the marriages were arranged at the time and uh, it, was, it was just a whole lot of fun. And um, the audience as well really got off and really enjoyed. We toured Ireland with this. And yeah, the great
0: country and western feel of it as well. Completely, it? Yeah, yeah. And
8: it, had a, um, it just fitted so well. Anyway, what section
0: are you going to do for So us?
8: this is a speech for uh, Petruccio. He, after a very chaotic wedding, he hauls uh, Catalina off to his house in uh, just outside Verona, and there he d- contrives to keep her awake, uh, make her hungry, um, to just keep her uh, in this state of uh, mm-hmm. chaos, if you like, so he can control her. So there you go. That's the way. <laughs> um, so that that was then, I suppose. Um, uh, and it goes something like this. Um, Thus have I politically begun my reign, and tis my hope to end successfully. My falcon now is sharp and passing empty. Until she stoop, she must not be full gorged, for then she never looks upon her lure. Another way I have to man my haggard, to make her come and know her keeper's call, and that is to watch her. As we watch those kites that bait and beat and will not be obedient. She eat no meat today, nor none shall she eat. Last night she slept not, nor tonight she shall not. As with the meat, some undeserved fault I'll find about the making of the bed. And here I'll fling the pillow, there the bolster, this way the coverlet, another way the sheets. <laughs> Aye. And amid this hurly, I intend that all is done in reverend care of her. And in conclusion, she shall watch all night. And if she chance to nod, I'll rail and brawl, and with the clamour keep her still awake. Ah, oh, this is a way to kill a wife with kindness. And thus I'll curb her mad and headstrong humour. He that knows better how to tame a shrew, now let him speak. Tis charity to show.
0: <laughs> and performing there from The Taming of the Shrew. And the 2006 version of the Shakespeare play as produced by uh, Rough Magic Theatre Company. We're going to finish up this part of the programme with a work that was very important to Rough Magic. Arthur Reardon's musical fantasy set in the time of the emergency where poor John Betjeman rubbed shoulders with spies, physicians or physicists rather like Schrodinger and wits like Flan O'Brien. For this extract you need to imagine the staff of the British Embassy in Dublin in 1941, the height of the emergency. Listen to the combined cast of Peter Hanley, Ivan Gaffney, Colin Campbell, Emmanuel O'Coye, Colin on piano, and Arthur Reardon in the mix as well with Be careful not to patronise
11: the Irish. Be careful not to patronise the Irish. Good grief you'll cry, that's hardly my intent. Nevertheless, when he's inclined, Paddy's mind is so designed. He'll go and find a fence where none was meant. No matter how one tries to get along,
9: unselfishly proclaiming Eira's undisputed charms. A simple mention, en
11: passant, of drinking, fighting and maudlin song, suddenly one is in the wrong and Pad is up in arms. In Dublin, a young visitor can realise all his wishes, provided they're not overly ambitious.
4: They speak the language after a fashion.
5: Haven't even begun to ration. Try the beef, it really is delicious.
11: But when the beer and whiskey flow, as they are apt to do, you know, beware the conversational hiatus.
9: An innocent allusion to the mainland and they glare at you as though you'd gone and blighted their potatoes. So So be be careful careful not not to patronise the Irish. They take
5: umbrage at the kindliest advice. Though it's clearly for his benefit, dear old Paddy's having none of it. When you tell him, a little decorum might be nice.
1: It's happened
4: to me. Just once or twice
9: I suppose they've had their woes
11: But all the whining, what's the point? They could be British if they chose There's still that option, have a nose But mention that and Paddy's nose Is further out of joint
1: Yes, Yet be, be careful, careful not to patronise the, the Irish Though they don't object to patronising you Is it smugness or insurgency That makes them say emergency? I feel it lacks the urgency of World War II
5: just remember dear old Blighty And the spirit of the Blitz And when Paddy's claim to nationhood is, is getting, getting on, on your tits, tits Just remember that we're Brits And we're better than these shits But
11: be careful not to patronise the arby and big Careful not to patronise the Where the
5: fuck is Glockamora. Careful not to patronise. <laughs> or otherwise antagonise. Be careful not to patronise. I'm doing it again. Surprise, surprise. Be careful not to patronise.
6: The bloody
5: Irish.
0: <laughs> be careful not to patronise the Irish from Improbable Frequency by Arthur Raven. We'll be back with the final part of our Arena Rook Magic special after this break. <laughs> And welcome back to the Project Arts Centre for the final part of tonight's Arena Rough Magic Special. Our event is the beginning of a weekend of performance and talks marking this important anniversary. In 2019, where we're in this very theatre, looking at the work of one of our greatest playwrights, Marina Carr. On that night, we discussed her new work. Hecuba, the lead actors in that play, Ashley McGuckin and Brian O'Doherty, were, will soon be performing in a new work by Hilary Fannin, uh, Children of the Sun, a co-production between the Abbey and Rough Magic to be staged in the Abbey in April. Now Ashleen McGuckin and Brian Doherty who will perform a scene from Marina Carr's Hecuba. In Greek mythology, Hecuba was the queen who married Priam, king of Troy. We join the action in the wake of the Trojan War. Hecuba has lost a daughter and a son. She is now at the mercy of the leader of the Greeks, Agamemnon. Carr uses a form of reported speech in this play. Encounters are described rather than enacted, as in this scene, performed now by Ashley McGuckin as Hecuba, Brian Doherty as Agamemnon
7: eat eat he says pushing more dishes towards me he raises a hand and the servants disappear behind curtains doorways i'm curious about your laws he says
12: our laws yes i'm trying to start a country bring all the warring factions together the fiefdoms the small fierce kingdoms we need a system We have Spartan law, of course, ancient, modelled on the Mycenaean, before that handed down from Crete. But the Danaeans, the Hellenes, the Thebans will have none of it. Not to mention all the island kingdoms.
7: Are they written down? Some of them. They must be written down, otherwise it's all confusion. But you're not a literate culture, are you? You don't have an alphabet, you don't read, write.
12: We have the priests to take care of that. A
7: king needs these tools.
12: Can you read? Right. She laughs. More a sneer. I've never come across a woman more arrogant, though I only see it in tiny flashes. Laws are hard to land, she says. Takes a long time.
7: Our laws were ten thousand years in the making.
12: And ten hours in the unmaking. Yes.
7: Lost. Buried in the rubble of Troy. What a great pity, he says, as if he had nothing to do with it.
12: And the tears come again. She wipes them away savagely, slapping at her eyes. I'd take her in my arms, but she'd read it wrong.
7: He looks away. My tears irritate him. Well, let them. Is he not the cause of them?
0: Ashley McGuffin and, and Brian Doherty there in that scene from Marina Carr's Hecuba. And let us finish with a performance as well, because that is what Rough Magic Theatre Company has been all about over the past 40 years. Um, and of course, we hope that we'll all be standing here in another 40 years doing another outside broadcast about the 80th birthday in some uh, other realm I guess. But we're going to finish with uh, the show Phaedra by Hilary Fallon and Ellen Cranich. Before we hear the the tears from that play, let me give my, express my thanks to Rough Magic and the Project Arts Centre for all of their help in creating this night of rough magic. Our production team for RTE was Paula Shields, Stephen Higgins, Lily Burke and Kay Sheehy. Sound engineering by Tom Norton, Liam Mullen, Ashley Grufferty and Damien Chanel back at base. Let's end then with Tears from the play Phaedra performed by Ellen Cranich on flute, Susanna de Rixon on vocal and Cattle Synod on piano.
6: tears upon